Hi. Thanks for tuning into the Good Trash Genrecast. Good Trash Genrecast is brought to you in part by SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. Your one-stop shop source for all of your comedy, satire, and pop culture news needs. The Good Trash Genrecast is also brought to you in part with help from listeners like you. For more information, go to Patreon.com forward slash GTGC. That's Patreon.com slash GTGC. We got a Black Hawk down. We got a Black Hawk down. 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 Good trash genre cast. So, dead? That's fine. How about alive? Hmm? You wanna know what got these scars? Can you spell it? D J A N G O. The D is silent. I have got to give me one of these. Luke, you're a wolf. Oh. What are these? What are you doing with these? Okay, I get it. I don't know. Who gave you these? Who taught you about these? Learned it from you, okay? I learned it from watching you! We can kill it. It's your last chance to walk away. Are you kidding? It's five against one. It's two against one. How do you figure? Once I take out the leader, which is you, I'll have to contend with one or two enthusiastic wingmen. The last two guys, I always win. Are you, uh, you done this before? It's getting late. Remember, you wanted this. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we apply film studies type analysis to films that do not belong in a film studies course. This week's film, Starship Troopers, the story of a uh, set, uh, a precinct, rather, of uh, space policemen and their uh, need to write many, many speeding tickets. Yeah, but, it's like, uh, it's basically chips. Yeah, basically chips with uh, spaceships. And uh, we're very, very excited to be talking about that. Space chips. <laughs> space chips. Um, space balls and space chips. Um, and we're going to be talking about this film with these disembodied voices here speaking to you right now. Let's go around the table and identify if you would, sir. Hi, my name is Caleb Masters. And uh, this is for all you new, new listeners out there. I have, I have one rule. Everyone fights. No one quits. If you don't do your job, I kill you myself. Welcome to the Good Trash Genre Cast. Did you just threaten to kill our listeners if they stop listening? <laughs> or us if we stop podcasting. I'm not sure which. <laughs> I'm not going to risk it either way. I promise those guns that point your heads are just for your own protection. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Across the table, if you would, sir. I am Arthur Gordon. And the contrary opinion, that podcasting doesn't solve anything, is wishful thinking at its worst. People who forget that always die. Very, very good. Thank you for that very much. Uh, to my right, sir, if you would. My name is Dalton Stewart, and come on, you apes. Do you want to live forever? Very, very true. My name is Dustin Sells, and I believe Arthur is afraid. I was afraid. I was petrified. <laughs> he kept thinking how he could ever live without you by his side. That's what it was. <laughs> he spent so many nights thinking how you'd done him wrong. But yes. he grew strong. He learned how to move along. And now I'm back. From outer space. Yes. <laughs> wow. Well, we need to move on. You should on. have changed your fucking locks. We are, we are off the rails already talking Starship Troopers. Now, dear listener, we need to warn you, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And so we will be giving spoilerific spoiler riches. Um, but we will not do that for the first few minutes of the show. The first few minutes, we'll have a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema, and then our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. After that point, we get down to business, which is analysis. And at that point, from that point forward... There will be spoilers, so you have now been warned. So with no further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Voice the Cinema, let's hear that synopsis. Humans in a fascistic, militaristic future do battle with giant alien bugs in a fight for survival. Yes, what happens? Yeah, more or less. Accurate. That's fair. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's the synopsis. That is the long and the short of it, yeah. It was synopsized. Uh, very, very well. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Let's do those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Dalton, I know you like this movie a lot. Tell us about it. Oh, it's so good. Guys, this movie is so good. Uh, I, I, I saw this movie for the first time when I was 
way too young, probably like 10, um, while eating stuffed crust pizza. And uh, I very vivid memories of watching this for the first time, uh, not just because of all the boobs, uh, but because of all the violence. Um, and just I've always been delighted by this movie, and the older I got, the more I was and more I understood about the world and politics and history, the more I was like, oh, wait a second, hold on. These are fascists. And then in high school, I finally got around to reading the novel, which is essentially just a treatise on how fascism uh, is the most perfect system of governance and how the Nazis ruined it for everyone. Uh, and what's so fascinating, again, after you know getting older and learning about fascism and reading the novel um, and you know learning about Paul Verhoeven and his process of a- adapting this, Paul Verhoeven being born in 1938 uh, in Holland, uh, which obviously was, you know, uh, seen a lot of shit because of World War II. Uh, Holland, yeah, uh, not not a great place to be uh, during the war. Uh, and so seeing this man who grew up during, who was born during, um, or right before the start of World War II, grew up in, during the fallout of World War II, uh, and, you know, the, the shadow that uh, German fascism cast over Europe for, you know, decades to come, you know, <clears throat> seeing his take on this material, it's great, guys. It is a very smart movie. It's very funny. It is very fun. The action is really well shot. It looks amazing. The effects in this movie are... It's, this movie came out in 1997. I cannot believe how well these effects have hold up, held up. Um, it, it is really an astonishing film, uh, just in terms of how well it holds up You know, almost 20 years later. This movie opens after the you know the initial scenes of violence to get you interested. It opens on a classroom discussion of how democracy failed. What? What? There's a whole lecture about how naked force is the only thing that uh, ever solves anything. It's amazing. Um, just the, the pure straight face satire at all. You know this movie? Um, I don't know if you guys know much about how it did when it came out. It did not do well, and most people did not get the joke when it came out. Uh, people really thought Verhoeven was... Uh, endorsing the fascism, and I'm guessing we were just really stupid in 1997, because watching it now, it seems pretty painfully obvious that this is a satire. But, uh, and that's what Verhoeven does. Uh, he, he makes interesting, thought-provoking, violent uh, satire. And um, good on him, man. I think this is every bit as good as RoboCop and um, Total Recall, which get uh, their praises sung a lot more frequently than, Robo- than uh, Starship Troopers. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Sir. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say in thumbs-up, thumbs-down review? I was quite surprised. This was my first time to see it, and I actually enjoyed it a great deal. Really? Yeah. I had not got around to watching this one yet. And? I enjoyed it quite a bit. I was pleasantly surprised. I, uh, and to your point, I think this may be my favorite of the Verhoeven experiences I've had. Um, I mean, it's my favorite because I saw it first, but I mean, having yeah. seen RoboCop until Recall several times, um, this is still my favorite. Um, but I, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's very sharp and smart, and I like that a lot. I enjoy the cast almost completely. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris is probably one of the only fumbles in the whole crew, as well as the guy who plays Rico's dad. Um, outside of that, I think everyone is having fun and doing good work. I think visually, as Dalton said, the movie holds up extremely well. Uh, for being made in 97, the CGI is impeccable. It looks great. And uh, you would have thought it was the CGI was recent. However... Uh, the computers they're using, though, look extremely dated. My biggest issue, I think, if I do have a criticism, it's the length and pacing. I feel like about halfway through that second act, and it's probably when it does become that straight-on action movie that Dalton mentioned, I feel like it just kind of becomes a slog for a good bit until we get towards the end of the third act where it picks up again. Yeah. But uh, other than that, and that's a problem I've had with other Verhoeven work. Um, Total Recall, I feel like, kind of becomes a slog for me personally uh, about halfway through or so. And so it just... Uh, that's that. If there was one criticism I had about this movie, that was it. Other than that, uh, I I think it's a lot of fun, and I would uh, check it out again. Definitely glad we watched it. See, for me, I actually have almost the uh, exact opposite criticism. I feel like the film kind of reaches its apex um, in the assault, where they're trying to defend that outpost, waiting for an extraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For me, that's where the f- film reaches its apex. I don't think yeah. it ever gets as. I think good they could have ended there. That, right? Into the second act, right there. Yeah, I don't think it ever gets that good again. Yeah, that's fair. So that, those are my thoughts on it, Dustin. What about you, Caleb Masters? What do you say about the film? Uh, well, it's definitely my favorite. My favorite. Your favorite. Favorite. Your favorite. Paul V. Herven. <laughs> Verhoeven. V- favorite. Uh, Mr. Uh, it's actually my favorite of uh, Mr. Verhoeven's films. Um, I don't like him as much as I think you guys do, but I do appreciate him. So. Well, yeah, but you're an idiot, so that's that's well, fine. You know, that's fine. Um, <laughs> the special effects point. are the special effects are phenomenal. I 
I don't know that some of the CGI does stick out a little bit, but then in the, in, trying to trying to put in a preface that it's, it's made nineteen ninety seven, I I do appreciate the use of a lot of the practical effects. The performances were kind of all over the wall, honestly. Like it, some of it works because it's a B movie, but like Neil yeah, Patrick no, no. Harris, I don't know what movie that guy's in because yeah. it's not the same movie as everyone else. Yeah, he's real wooden. He doesn't seem comfortable, and I mean, this is probably his first big movie, uh, kind of following his Doogie Browser Doogie Howser break early in that or in the late eighties and nineties. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm. I haven't looked at his filmography, but I don't. He kind of goes away between Doogie Howser and this, and yeah. he kind of goes away again after this. Yeah, and I think I mean you see him now in How I Met Your Mother or Gone Girl. He does a lot better. Well, yeah, now. now that he's hot shit because of How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, it, overall though, I mean, the, and the other performances, I, I don't find any of the characters characters remotely likable. Maybe I'm not supposed to. I really don't. Well, like I him. mean, Casper Van Diem's not a particularly great actor. I mean, he he's fine. I've actually seen. I him. like Johnny Rico. I, I like the character. I like his performance in this. Yeah, but I think in general, yeah, he's he's pretty. Liberal. I was pretty much sitting around the whole movie waiting for his ass to get kicked. So you know that that's just me. Really? Though. Yeah. I, I wasn't. Oh. I, I wanted to root for him. I mean, I felt kind of bad with the the lady situation, and then I felt kind of bad with the dad situation. But really, like he's. I mean, and this is just like the the, the Marine complex. So it's not necessarily that faults that kind of archetype he's portraying is like this very el macho see i so, love his arc in this uh, i love his arc from uh, rich pretty boy who joined the military to chase a girl to like battle hardened uh commander uh, yeah at then like a propaganda tool by the end of the film like that lieutenant john rico and rico's roughnecks are this this now like picture picture perfect unit and they're being used to sell the mobile infantry to impressionable youths i did i did find the uh the uh, the Kind of exploration why these Marines are working for the Corps to be fascinating. I thought I found that fascinating, but I, like as in these guys are all using it as a tool to accomplish set goals. But I didn't really feel like that idea played out by the end of the movie. Uh, but use of propaganda, I think the satire is pretty spot on, though. I'd agree with you on that. Um, overall, though, you know, like I said, favorite Verhoeven movie, but I still don't love it as much. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. I like this movie a whole lot. I don't know if it's my favorite Verhoeven all either. I, I really, really like uh, Total Recall a lot. And Recall is good, also and, featuring Dean Norris. And, yes, and I, I can really get behind and make an argument for Basic Instinct, but I'm not going to do that at this point. Um, but yeah, you could get behind Basic Instinct. <laughs> well, the, oh, <laughs> nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah, yeah, I'm did. done. I'm walking yeah, away now. Yes. Get, Hashtag look, nailed it. Shut you, it down. It's not going to get better than that today. Are you really leaving? Oh, no, okay, no I'm, still, I'm still here. Oh, okay. That's all right. Um, Wish but, denied. <laughs> Um, but I love uh, the vulgar tourism of um, one Verhoeven, and uh, I might say more about this a little bit later. But he is one of the the very few I, that we throw this term around a lot, and kind of just sort of schlocky directors that sort of have a style. And I don't really think that's really what we need to be talking about when we're talking about auteurism. We're talking about very, very mainstream, very, very commercial sorts of films that still have the through line. And he certainly has that going on. And, you know, as a member of the uh, Dutch Surrealists uh, during his time in uh, in Holland, he is, uh, d- there's, there's a whole lot of this sort of going on uh, within his work. And I see much of it in Starship Troopers. I do like all the performances. Michael Ironsides does just knock it out. And uh, he's probably the best thing about the movie, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but yeah, I like it, like it a whole lot. Of and it's just, it, I don't really have um, pacing issues and some of those sort of questions that some of you guys had. But it, it overall is weaker in that it's sort of tonally weird at times. It feels like it doesn't really quite know what it is. But I um, forgive all of that because of the brilliant propaganda videos, and uh, the, especially the way the film ends. Oh, it's so, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. And, yeah, they're just fantastic. So I like them a whole lot. And the sort of do you want to know more, which is sort of the way um, one-click ads work now uh, now in the Internet. So yeah. It's very, Roll very, over to see more. I know, right? It's very anticipatory of uh, where we're at now. So Your children could be in danger. Five things you need to know before trick-or-treating. Click through this slideshow. That'll take 40 minutes to load. Yes. So there you go, dear listener. Now you know our biases. Um, they are generally pro. Uh, regarding Starship Troopers and one Paul Verhoeven. Uh, let's talk about what we're here to do. Let's get down to business and bring some analysis. It's That's right, dear listener, and that business into question is analysis, and we are so excited to be bringing that to you right now on Starship Troopers. I ask you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what analysis have you brought into the show? 
I want to discuss the arachnids in the film as being harbingers of fate for our characters, uh, specifically Rico and Ibanez. At the beginning of the movie, they are high school sweethearts who have dreams of going off and joining the military and then being intertwined forever. It's a common thread amongst film narrative. Two people meet and it's love at first sight, and they are destined to stay together. Uh, Verhoeven's narrative takes us down a different route. Uh, there are two other players in the narrative that have to keep be kept in mind here, Dizzy and Xander. Uh, Dizzy also has a thing for Rico, and early on there is a moment where Ibanez meets Xander, uh, the other alpha male of the film, and Rico's foil. The connection between the bugs and the relationship is made early in the film after Diz questions Ibanez's nerves and will. Ibanez is smart, but Diz questions if she has the stomach to battle the bugs. Uh, This first test posed to Ibanez takes place in some sort of biology class uh, where the students are dissecting bugs. Preceding the scene, we get a back and forth from Rico and Ibanez about their future and whether she will go into guitar sales like her forefathers or if she will go off into the uh, uh, military. (laughs) Thank you for that joke. This is where Diz raises questions about Ibanez's nerves. In the follow-up, as Rico and Ibanez are dissecting their specimen, it quickly becomes clear that Ibanez may not have the stomach for dealing with these bugs, and essentially it questions her ability to stomach the horrors of war. Rico, Diz, and Carl are all able to dive in and ignore the disgust of the situation. It is in these two scenes that we get a direct correlation with the bugs and the relationship between Ibanez and Rico. As the film progresses, Rico turns down Harvard to go into the Corps uh, to fight and be on a path near Ibanez, who has gotten into the Flight Academy. The next instance we see of an arachnid is during a newsreel airing, which precedes a scene of Ibanez telling Rico that she loves him as she says goodbye and heads to the Academy. It again establishes a connection between the two narratives within the film. The story progresses with both characters at their respective schools, uh, where Diz has gravitated towards Rico and Xander is training Ibanez. It is within this section that they exchange video letters and Ibanez breaks up with Rico. In the preceding sequences of the film, Xander and Ibanez share a spark and look to be, uh, look to be growing closer relationally. It is, all, it is at this moment that the first major encounter happens uh, with the Bugs, who move into an attack on Earth and destroy Buenos Aires, leading to a full-on war. After the tragedy of Buenos Aires, uh, Rico and Ibanez are again drawn together. In this scene, Rico and Xander again butt heads as the two alpha males showing who has dominance in relation to Ibanez. The clear winner goes undecided, though, as they are broken apart, settling essentially in a draw. As the film moves towards a climax, uh, Rico and Diz become close and end up sleeping together. Diz is punished for this action when the bugs show up and she is killed during battle. Rico and Ibanez are designed to be together. Nothing can stand in their way. Just as Ibanez's foil in Diz is killed, uh, so too is Rico's foil, Xander. Xander and Ibanez wind up in the lair of the brain arachnid. In the sequence, Xander must die for getting in the way of true love. The arachnids had every opportunity to kill both Xander and Ibanez, but they only wound Ibanez and hold her until Rico is able to show up as the hero and save her. Once Rico and Ibanez are reunited... Uh, with nothing standing between them, they are able to incap- They are able to incapacitate the arachnids and escape. Then, on a larger scale, they provide an opening for the core to move in and get a win against the arachnids. With their relationship returning to its harmonious path, so can the world of bugs and humans begin to move back towards where it was. The classical narrative is designed so that Rico and Ibanez live happily ever after. Within the story, anything that comes between them disrupts harmony in the universe. Thus the bugs serve as harbingers once the harmony is disrupted and they act to bring our couple back together. Excellent, excellent. I like that reading very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what analysis do you bring? Well, I, I think I just want to discuss a little bit um, something I touched on in my, in my review, and that is um, a little bit of adaptation theory, because so rarely have I actually read the source material I have in this case. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about just how interesting this film is in terms of what it depicts versus what uh, the novel by Robert Heinlein depicts. Um, In the film, it really is kind of a strangely benign fascism in a lot of ways. Um, You know, there is no uh, racial hegemony. I mean, it's pretty well a a very ethnically diverse uh, world we see. Um, It has complete gender equality. But also there are things like um, somebody was tried for murder today. They were found guilty. They'll be executed tonight at twelve. Uh, click now for more details. Uh, I'd rather see. I'd rather take ten lashes in public square than see you join the military. Like this is just the world we're in, and I love the how casually people throw throw out lines like that. Just these very casual, and because this is this is the status quo in this world. 
Um, and I, I think what Verhoeven does is, I think what Verhoeven does so successfully is play it completely straight faced. Um, th- there's no winking, there's no nudging, and I think that's why people didn't quite pick up on the satire. But the fact that um, Neil Patrick Harris and the rest of the uh, military intelligence are all dressed like members of the SS uh, tells you that. No, he's in on Verhoeven's in on the joke. He would not dress characters like that if you were supposed to think they were awesome. Um, and and all of the symbols and uniforms of what this federation are very heavily influenced by by Nazi garb. Um, and, and I think Verhoeven is trying to make a point about militarism as an excuse to do whatever you want to your populace. Now Highland did not think he was writing a defense of fascism. Now, I, w- I want to be clear about that. I know I've I've said that. The, the man himself did not think he was supporting fascism. He was. I want to be clear about that, too. He wasn't aware of it. He didn't realize it. He thought he was promoting a meritocracy that respected, resp- that was put importance on personal responsibility and did have a lot of respect for the military because it, this idea that by being in service, you're taking personal responsibility for the body politic, as uh, John Rico says, both in the film and in the novel. Uh, whereas in the novel, he is Juan Rico, by the way. Just feel like pointing that out. Uh, yep, he's Filipino, uh, living in Buenos Aires. But my point is, uh, in the novel and in the film, we do see the opposite of a racial and nationalistic hegemony. It, it is a cultural and political hegemony, but in terms of nationalities and ethnicities, it is a pretty blended society, which is the first thing we think about when we talk about fascism, is um, this idea of racial and nationalistic uh, superiority. Uh, And in the film, we don't actually, or the novel, we don't actually see this, um, which is interesting. But what we do see is a militaristic hegemony. Um, Again, the whole idea, the whole reason people are joining the military in this world is because Service guarantees citizenship. Civilians aren't just people who are in the military. They're not full-fledged citizens. They do not get representation in politics. And that is a militaristic dictatorship. It is very loosely... You could only very loosely describe it as a democracy. And I do want to just touch on very briefly what inspired Heinlein to write this. Um... And again, I'm lazy, so I'm going to be reading directly from Wikipedia. According to Heinlein, his desire to write Starship Troopers was sparked by the publication of a newspaper advertisement placed by the National Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy on April 5, 1958, calling for a unilateral suspension of nuclear weapon testing by the United States. In response, Robert and Virginia Heinlein created the Small Patrick Henry League in an attempt to create and support to create support for the U.S. nuclear testing program. Heinlein found himself under attack from both within and outside the sci-fi community for his views. Heinlein used the novel to clarify and defend his military and political views at the time. The Patrick Henry League, uh, for your information, dear listener, was sort of a precursor of the uh, modern-day Tea Party caucus within the Republican Party. More or less. So you could not... You you could uh, understand why Heinlein doesn't think he was writing fascism... It is very far right-wing, though, Uh, and it is a world he describes in which, again, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Robert Heinlein thought he was describing a world in which we personal responsibility um, was the ultimate ideal in, in a political society. The problem with that is... It also says, well, people who don't take personal responsibility the way we see fit are lesser than, are not real citizens, uh, which is, yeah, fascism, which is where you are saying one group of people within the society is lesser than, and there is a better group amongst us, and we are going to be responsible for your well-being, and we will make the decisions because we know better than you do. Your personal liberties are not important. The cohesion of this Government is what is important. And I think that is what is so fascinating. Is Highland, again, did not think of himself as a fascist. He was, one more time. I know I've said it about three times now, but I want to point that out. Let's be very clear. Robert Heinlein wrote a 300-page novel that supports fascism. A novel, for fun fact, that was required reading by the United States Marine Corps officers and several and in several military... Uh, what? Yeah, military science programs... This was the first science fiction novel to be required reading. That's because sad. it does 
depict the military in not only a shining light, but also um, in a light of everyone fights, no one quits, everyone pulls their weight. It is all about group cohesion, which is why we have a non-cohesive society, the body politic, that is civilian and is responsible for the military. What Robert Heinlein is describing is a world, and this is why the military loves it, that essentially says, no, civilians shouldn't be in charge of the military. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Which there might be some truth to that. I don't know shit, jack shit about being in the military other than what people have told me uh, and what movies have told me, uh, which is that it seems hard. Um, so again, just I, I don't want to out, out, out and out demonize Heinlein because it is a, it's a good read. I mean, it's a fun novel. Uh, it's in it, But it is also fascinating to basically read somebody rationalize why authoritarian um, quasi-dictatorships uh, are a good form of governance. And it's fascinating to watch Paul Verhoeven deconstruct this idea and say, no, not really. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, because I grew up right next door to one, and it wasn't that much fun. Thank you very much for that analysis, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, I also want to talk about fascism in relationship to the novel. And I want to talk about how the novel, uh, or rather the film, helps us see how fascism comes to power. Because ordinarily, fascists arrive at a place of power, usually um, under tremendous popular support. Uh, we have to remember Hitler was elected democratically. And uh, the way this goes about and the way the film sort of illustrates it is that, first of all, you have to have a crisis. That fascism is fundamentally a, uh, a set of reactionary. government – A reactionary um, sort of policy based on crisis. For Hitler, it would be the example of the burning of the Reichstag, um, the, the German parliament. In, in the case of the film, it is the asteroid attack on Buenos Aires. And, and what they do then is they, they – they take on powers, sometimes in a sense limited for a time. I think I think of the uh, long discussion of uh, the Caesars in uh, the Dark Knight film, in which Harvey Dent and a Bruce Wayne character have this conversation about taking on extreme authority in one character, one person. And then, of course, what ends up happening in Rome is that one of those people does not relinquish power. Now, it's anachronistic to call Rome fascist, but it is a similar sort of development, that there is a moment of crisis, and then... Through that moment, power is concentrated in a singular place, and again, as Dalton has already talked about in the novel adaptation, it is concentrated in the place of the military. And then the next necessary step is the full dehumanization and othering of an enemy, uh, the choice of using bugs, arachnids as the enemy uh, because it makes them faceless, nameless, uh, it makes them, in a way, they're not human. Now, this happens all the time. This is what Hitler does with uh, Jews and with uh, Poles and with others, you know, any who would sort of oppose the Reich. Uh, and, and that they, these folks are no longer people. And that because of that dehumanization, sort of the loyalty and the uh, cruelty that is exercised against them is somehow justified. It is why, again, and I've talked about this before, how zombie films are fundamentally fascist fantasies, is that we create this sort of other that we can annihilate um, because they are no longer human beings. In this case, they are not. But what happens in, in world history is that that's exactly what we do to those enemies. If they are enemies of ours, we cannot see that they are people with problems and issues and questions that we could meet at a table and have a conversation and perhaps find some sort of peaceful accord by which we could solve those problems. No, they are monsters, and the only thing you can do with a monster is kill it. Well, and again, uh, yeah, we we live in this wonderful land where we get to, as Dustin said, sit around a table and have a conversation about a peaceful uh, exchange. This is, according to Heinlein, the problem with the world, because in the democracies, quote, in the democracies of the 20th century, people had been led to believe they could simply vote for whatever they wanted and get it without toil, without sweat, without tears. Yeah, and, and of course, and that sort of implies that the work of peace is without toil or sweat or or tears. That that pacifism that pacifism is somehow passiveism, and that of course is not the case. Um, that there's there there is much work and toil and sweat and tears and even at times blood to mm -hmm. make those sort of things happen. Now that being said, uh, so once you have done this act of dehumanization, anything that begins to indicate humanity, uh, what you do with those things is you bracket away those things which would make you want to have conversation. Bugs and that you, think, I find the idea offensive. Correct. Exactly what I was going to cite. But then any aspect of it that you can popularize for uh, greater propaganda purposes, then you jump all over it. It's afraid, and it's met with cheers. 
that the enemy is frightened of us, that if, if any enemy becomes frightened of our military might, that that is a wonderful moment, other than thinking, wait, there are other human beings in the case of you know world politics because we, don't, we haven't discovered aliens yet. When we face them and they're fearful, that is not a moment of joy. We have to think there are people terrified in their homes about you know whatever shock and awe is coming their way. And uh, so that's sort of how fascism begins to happen. And any time we find ourselves in moments of crisis, we find that fascism is a very seductive way of dealing with the world. That Johnny Rico is done with the military, that he is done being responsible for the lives of other humans after having lost a human life. In a training exercise. Un- yeah, under his command. Under his command. He had somebody killed. And then when this moment happens, he is motivated by, in part, revenge because his parents are from Buenos Aires. But also, along with everybody else and sort of the reason why his commanders are wanting to let him in is because now we have this moment in which all we can do is be a, a blind ball of id fury focused at an enemy. What, what what needs to be done in, in regard to this and what, what the power of this film can be, if people watch it properly, I think, is that we can look at this film and say, okay, now we need to be prepared. That, again, there will be crises. Again, there will be enemies. Again, there will be people who are aggrieved who will go to violence and perhaps even terror to g- uh, gain whatever it is they, they, they think they need. And that, that's, that is a thing that's going to happen. But we do not have to necessarily respond in the same way. And I think about the incredibly tragic loss of life that we that we see in the film, and again, as we look at military history, uh, World War II, uh, even you know our war on terror here in the United States. As we begin to look at this, we go, man, I mean, maybe we could have found some other place, and without sort of falling to caricatures of Neville Chamberlain, you know, and kowtowing to mm-hmm. to the baddies. Yeah. And so I, I think in that way the film is prescient, but I think it's also D- diplomacy pre- is not necess- is not inherently appeasement. Right. And it, uh, but what I feel like it is prescriptive in a way that has yet to be applied and I find that to be extraordinarily powerful in watching the film. So, there you go, dear listener. That's some analysis that we just did, and we'd like to hear what you think about that. But before we get to that point, we tell you how to do that. We want to render a verdict at this point, in which we render this film to the shelf or the trash, and we recommend our else's or our instead's. Mr. Caleb Masters, what say you? Shelf or trash, else or instead? I don't know. I, I wouldn't put it on my shelf personally. It's one of those, it's, a, it's such an influential movie, though. It... it no, so it's like almost like a crime not to shelf it, but um, oh, I don't know, man. Hey, go with your gut, dude. Uh, trash. Um, else, I would say. Uh, I mean, just a lot of the, the a lot of the things it's influenced. I'd definitely go watch James Cameron's Aliens, which I think's uh, 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 perhaps a little more successful in the portrayal of Space Marines, at least. Um, I quite like the book and the movie of Ender's Game. Check out, check that out there. Um, might not, even even if you're not a fan of the author, he is. Uh, he yeah. is. Uh, uh, he made some good. He, he made some uh, a really good book series that's probably not going to get a full extension in the movies. But the movie, first movie on its own, is pretty good. And there's a real, uh, real in depth whole kind of world galaxy he built featuring bug-like aliens that actually aren't as evil as they are portrayed uh, in Starship Troopers. Uh, and lastly, uh, kind of a fun side note, go play StarCraft, which was also came out the same time yep. as the movie. Also influenced by the book, not the movie, but yep. tons and tons of similarities. Or uh, for fun, something a little more contemporary, just another rip-off of a rip-off of a rip-off. Mass Effect does a very similar thing. Lots of really great story. So, video game-wise. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and give this movie a final rating of five helmetless recruits out of a possible 11.6. That's about all I got. Thank you very much. I appreciate that very much, Caleb Masters. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Yeah, I got to shelf it, Dustin. Uh, I love this movie uh, a lot. As frequent listeners of the show know, I'm not much of a rewatcher. I don't revisit films very often. Uh, I've seen Starship Troopers probably a a dozen times or so. Uh, Yeah, this is a delightful movie. Uh, and I think everybody should check it out if you haven't already. Um, obviously, I think you should pair this with um, Mr. Verhoeven's other satirical, uh, hyper-violent sci-fi action films, RoboCop and Total Recall. Um, and again, they, they make a, a nearly perfect science fiction trilogy. Um, I, I absolutely think they do. Uh, with each one more futuristic than the last, RoboCop is set tomorrow, essentially. I mean, any day from now. 
Total Recall is set, you know, a few decades from now, and Starship Troopers is set a few hundred years from now. Uh, and they all coming out in late 80s, early 90s, late 90s. I think they, again, an absolutely 100% perfect science fiction trilogy that isn't actually a trilogy proper. Um, I think you should absolutely watch them together. And finally, uh, I do also want to recommend you pair this with Dustin's favorite film that we've ever talked about on this show, uh, Equilibrium. Huh. In which you get to see uh, yet another fun action movie that depicts fascism, uh, but this time Batman kills all the fascists instead of the, the fascists continuing to uh, rule the day at the end. Uh, I give Starship Troopers the coveted uh, 10 lashes in public square out of a possible 10. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, shell for trash, else or instead? I wouldn't be opposed to shelving this at all. I think it's a good time with a lot to say, and I like it for that. I give it 43 death from above tattoos out of 46. Else, I think you definitely check out Men in Black, uh, which could make for a fun double feature here. Also, take a look at Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, uh, which are much darker and more critical looks at war in the military. I think Platoon's a very underrated film. Excellent, excellent. I like that. Yeah, I like I like those picks a lot, Arthur. All righty. Well, um, what I'm going to say is um, I'm going to say Shelf as well. I think it's definitely worth watching, and I think you should check out, you know, Triumph of the Will. Seriously. And uh, which is a, a Nazi propaganda movie. Yeah, Lenny Riefenstahl. Lenny Riefenstahl. And just, just see the pairings and see sort of the connections there. And I give the film a rating of, oh, 47 and three quarters. He sucked his brains out out of a possible 50. And so there you go, dear listener. Um, let's move on, though, and do our uh, social media stuff at this point. Let's talk about that. And now we can have the conversation keep going. Good save, old man. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Let's talk about social media. Arthur, talk about that. Uh, yes, old man. Uh, you could find us on uh, Facebook. Uh, Dustin, that's a website, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, which is a, on the newfangled Internet. You can connect with other people. I don't need no interwebs. Give me a flannel graph. <laughs> Uh, Dustin's still using Morse code to send out those SMS texts in his in his house. <laughs> uh, but you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash good trash honorcast, one word. Uh, and over there we do have a little bit of feedback coming in. We got a lot of buzz in regards to our uh, at our look at In the Mouth of Madness. Really? That's a lot of prepositions. Do we really, though? Yeah. That's kind of surprising to me. Go on. Of, we got a lot of positive uh, likes and, and comments and stuff, and so people were seem to be kind of on board with that one happening, eh? Uh, Shelby Parks, after our, we posted that with a picture of the, the Sam Neill in the movie, uh, Shelby Parks said that, I saw Sam Neill and thought you were doing Event Horizon. I'm disappointed now. Oh, no, Shelby. We've talked about Event no. Horizon before. Yeah, I, I let him know that we have, in fact, done Event Horizon, and he could be one of the select few to go back and listen to it. It's one of our, li- Very few. One of our least listened to episodes of all time. Uh, Rory Crittenden stated that Madness is amazing, and he elaborated by saying, I remember watching it in a marathon of Carpenter movies that I had yet to see, and out of Assault on Precinct 13, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness, he found it the most interesting. Uh, you get to see Sam Neill realize he's been channeling this madness as it eventually overtakes him. The descent into madness was fantastic. It's much like a Geary the Wrath of God got into a car wreck with the Call of Cthulhu. That is accurate. I love that mashup. Holy well crap. Said. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Come be on our show. That was very well put. Who was that? Uh, Rory Crittenden. Rory, way to, way to be. Dude, <laughs> today you win the internet. Yeah, man. Uh, in regards to our fictional authors game, uh, Philip Chapman uh, chimed in with Alan Wake. Oh, nice, good, good call, Phil. Of the video game series. Uh, so that's what we have coming in from Facebook. Uh, you could also find us over on Google Plus. Connect with us there if you use that media forum. Uh, you could also email us goodtrashgenrecast at gmail dot com. Excellent, thank you very much, Mister Arthur Gordon, Mister Dalton Stewart. Do you know anything else about social media? All right, let's sum up. This year, we've explored the failure of social media. How our listicles brought our world to the brink of chaos. We talked about the social comedians, how they took control and established the stability that has lasted for generations since. You know the facts, but have I taught you anything of real value? You. Why are funny people only allowed to tweet? It's a reward, something the Federation gives you for doing federal service? No. Something given has no value. When you tweet, you are exercising your political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all social media interactions are derived. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Thank you, thank you, um, Mind Fuhrer. Go ahead and give us some (laughs) analysis there. (laughs) 
Uh, no, thank Michael Ironsides and Paul Verhoeven for that. Uh, uh, once again, that's Good Trash Genrecast uh, on Twitter at good underscore trash. Not a lot of written feedback this week. I'll tell you what, though. Dustin's interview with Matt Jackson, the director of Love and the Time of Monsters, blew up. Lots of retweets and favorites for that. I mean, a, a ton. Like like a bunch. So that's exciting. Uh, that was a, a little bonus episode we, we threw you guys there right along with In the Mouth of Madness and then followed by The Exorcist. We were full of uh, uh, of nougaty extra goodness this this last week of Shocktober. We we love Shocktober. It only comes but once a year, so we do try to make the most of it when we can. So we're really thrilled that you guys enjoyed that. I, I appreciate that a lot. But again, as I said, not a whole lot of written feedback coming in this week. Lots of new followers, though. That's always something that, that makes me quite happy. Um, so we love it, guys. Please keep following us. Uh, you know where to do that, at good underscore trash. Uh, your tweets, your feedback are part of the reasons we reason we do this. Uh, this show is all about the conversation that film can inspire, uh, and part of that is the conversation we have with you, the listener. So once again, that's good underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, and you, as always, you can... Uh, review and um, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Well, as I look upon my watch, guys, guess what? It's time to play the game. Oh, we got real. That's right, dear listener, and this week's game is our favorite fictional wars. That's right, Favorite Fictional Wars, brought to you by Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers, would you like to know more? <laughs> very, very well said. Uh, well, since you've got the microphone and you're doing the talking, Dalton, go ahead and tell us more about your Favorite Fictional Wars. Some of my, <clears throat> sorry, some of my Favorite Fictional Wars uh, are going to be coming from television. Uh, actually, I don't have a single Fictional War that's coming from film this week. Uh, I wanted to kind of cast a wide net for, for this game. Um, I went with the uh, the Battle of the Five, the War of the Five Kings, rather, not the Battle of the Five Things. That's a Tolkien thing, and I don't really care about it. Talking about the War of the Five Kings um, from uh, George R. R. Martin uh, in his Game of Thrones God, universe. That was so brilliant, so brilliant. Five ways of a war, man. It doesn't get any more oh, like, dramatic than that. Fucking great, yeah, man. Um, w- which again is based on a lot of the history of of Europe and, and the constant warring that took place after the fall of. Um, the, the slow decline of the Roman Empire. Um, yeah, Mar- Martin's writing, I, 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 haven't, I can't speak to because I've never read the novels, but uh, uh, Benoff, uh, Benioff, help me out here. Uh, uh, Benioff and Weiss. That's what I thought, Benioff and Weiss. Uh, just the, the show is so fantastic. Uh, I absolutely love Game of Thrones, as you, you know, listener. Uh, and my favorite seasons are probably the seasons that outright depict this war and the political machinations that are keeping the wheels of war churning. Um, which is just ah, it's so good. Um, and I think that's what makes it so good is not the battles, because we don't really see that many of them on the TV show for budget constraints, but it's the politics that we get to see, which make it so interesting. Um, also want to shout out a much maligned, but a pretty interesting comic book story arc, which is Marvel's Civil War. The uh, All the superheroes going to war with each other over the idea of the Superhuman Registration Act uh, and whether or not people with superpowers should have to register with the, the federal government. I think it's pretty interesting. Curious to see how Captain America colon Civil War turns out next year, uh, or as I've been calling it, Avengers 2.5, as a lot of people have been calling it. And finally, I want to give a shout-out to a, a novel that I've talked about on this show here before that I listened to because I'm lazy recently. I listened to it, uh, and that is Armada, the follow-up to Ready Player One by Ernst Klein. Um, Armada it, it takes a lot of inspiration from Ender's Game, which uh, Caleb has talked about already on the show. Um, but it is very, very interesting, the, the, just the, this, this fictional war that is depicted uh, that turns out not to be a war at all, but was it? Uh, very fascinating uh, depictions of conspiracies and the lies we tell ourselves to justify violent force. Uh, great stuff. I uh, really liked Armada a lot. Can't recommend it more. So those are my picks for my, my favorite fictional wars. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Caleb Masters, what are your picks? Uh, so I gotta have, I've got a couple. Uh, firstly, uh, be, I'd be a shame if we didn't mention the Brown Coat Rebellion from Firefly. I mean, it's kind of a iconic... War and TV that's gone on to influence other wars and in, in TV, fantasy, sci-fi, fiction. Uh, then you've got uh, the War of the Terminators and Terminator, featured by uh, starring John Connor. 
If you're hearing this, you are the resistance. Guys, Batman's leading the rebellion. Did you know it? I didn't realize that. Uh, and uh, lastly, I want to give a great shout out to um, uh, the Great War from Fallout, which ended, started and ended October twenty third, two thousand seventy seven. Nuclear Holocaust, which caused the was the kind of birth of that series. That what's kind of nifty about this one that I really like is it's uh, actually feature. It's actually the kind of the, the catalyst of a bunch of small wars between the U.S. and China over oil that happened throughout the early 2000s. doesn't sound vaguely familiar at all. Uh, anyway, yeah, that'll be about my uh, my picks for uh, war, favorite wars. Thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what are your picks? Uh, first, I'm going to kick it off with a little bit of uh, 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 Guillermo del Toro love and talk about the war of the Kaiju and the Jaegers. Uh, from Pacific Rim. Yes. Uh, which is just a lot of fun because we get to see Kaiju. really big monsters get to fight really big robots, and it does it better than Transformers, so I'm definitely oh, on yes. board. Uh, and so it's a lot of fun, and it's a blast, and really cool creature design, really cool robot design, uh, just a really good movie overall. Uh, next, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it back a few years to a show we talked about this summer, and that is Independence Day. And the battle for our independence from aliens. It's a good thing those aliens didn't have a Macintosh computer. Yeah. Uh, resistance led by Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum. If we ever go to war again, large-scale world war, I want Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum leading the way. Just put them in a couple of tanks and send them over there. They'll either be able to blow stuff up or charm their way out of it. Uh, finally, I'm going to end with the War of Man versus Apes from uh, kind of specifically talking Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Uh, which is just really cool. It's really well done. Uh, the seeds are planted very nicely in uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and so that's a it was a good re- re- reboot for the tri- the franchise, not trilogy, uh, and it's just a lot of fun. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is so good. I mean, I know it did well critically and commercially. I, I think people don't love it enough. I want them to love it more than they do. Everybody loved the movie now. So good. So good. The good trash fascist cast. Tells you to love that movie. We've only tried Poor to. Yeah, we've only Obe- tried to Obey. <laughs> All hail the glow cloud. Be oh. one of us. <laughs> Be one of us. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Uh, of course, my favorite wars. I'm going to go with some big fan favorites. Just some of the big guys out there. Those wars of you know the stars, the Star Wars, including Clone Wars and Rebellion Wars, and all those other wars that go along with it. Because I love going to a uh, galaxy far, far away, a long, long time ago, and they're wonderful stories, and they just make me very, very happy. Speaking of fighting fascism, how about Harry Potter and wizard fascism? That's bad. Wizard fascism is still fascism. It's yeah. It's, it's just wizards and f- magic fascism. Which is, it, is, it, is it make it inherently cooler because it's wizard fascism though? No, fascism is never cool. <laughs> is it cooler than regular fascism? See, this is why it's so seductive because there are people like Caleb. And <laughs> no, I would rather have Nazi fascism or wizard fascism. They're both fascism. I think, I think fascism is so seductive because the outfits are so slimming. Is it? Well, you know, I mean, Hugo Boss did design most of those uh, German SS uniforms. I mean, that's a true yeah. Fact. They looked fucking rad, yeah, and now they, look- they ruined rad uniforms for the rest of human history because they sucked ass at being human beings. Yeah, it's a bad thing. Very, very bad thing. That's why high fashion, yeah, you don't see much of that in the military any longer. Uh, Lastly, I'm a big Tolkien fan, as everyone knows, and I do want to mention the War of Wrath in the Silmarillion, in which Melkor, later named Morgoth, is finally cast down, and their version of Atlantis, which is Numenor, is cast in the sea. Yes, I'm a nerd. And I think I I'm a virgin care. again after listening to that. <laughs> I think I just I just am again. <laughs> just This is what happened immediately. Yeah. Um, I just gotta say, that you're, you're right, though, that, that war is way more badass than anything that happens in any of the movies. Absolutely. By a lot. Yeah, so it is really awesome because you know it's God's fighting, and uh, that's pretty cool. So there you go. Um, those are some of my picks. We'd love to hear your picks, dear listener, and uh, we'll give you more opportunity to do that through social media. So, But we got to move on and end the show as we always do with what's got us fired up this weekend, pop culture. The roof, the roof, the roof is on. That's right, dear listener. We are all kinds of fired up about pop culture, and we want to hear all about it. Mr. Dalton Stewart, can you bring the fire to this table at this time? No, not really. Uh, Since you last listened uh, to my dumb voice, listener, I've basically exclusively been playing The Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt, courtesy of one Caleb 
M Masters. Thanks, Caleb. It is M, right? D. Ah, oh, damn it. Total guess. Caleb was nice enough to lend me The Witcher 3 after we recorded last week. And that's, I'm not kidding you. Every scrap of my spare time this last week has been spent playing that dumb yeah, game. It'll eat. It'll eat all your spare time. Yeah. Every second of it, like uh, 200 hours of your spare time, in fact. Yeah, I, I mean, I've taken a break long enough to watch my shows, watch my, watch my, still watch my crazy ex-girlfriends, my, my arrows, my flashes, my uh, last man on earth is... is um, you know, I'm not watching a lot of TV right now, so it's been pretty... My Fargo's, that's about it. Uh, but other than that, yeah, just playing the damned Wild Hunt. So fun. Been playing a lot of fucking Gwent, which is just yeah. a joke for people who've been playing that game. Oh my god, that game is so addictive. Just, just, Gwent. just Gwent. Not the game but, as yeah. a whole. Dude, I played a lot of Gwent. Like an entire smartphone game could be launched specifically off the mini game inside the game. Oh, it's so fun. So that's what I've been doing this week. Uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention last night was Halloween, and as part of um, Halloween, uh, Hallow's Eve, might have been the day before that actually, Stars launched their new original series, Ash vs. Evil Dead, starring Bruce Campbell. I've yes. heard good things. I, yeah, everything I've seen looks good. I've heard good things. I haven't watched it myself yet, but I am very excited about it. So uh, that's about all I've, I've got going on this week, guys. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say about fop, pop culture? Fop culture? Pop culture. Fop culture. I don't want that? fop, god dang it. I'm a dapper Dan man. I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> uh, I am a little fired up this week. Uh, a couple things. Uh, I got my October loot crate in uh, with its time theme, which was really exciting. Uh, it came with some really cool stuff. Uh, a Bill and Ted's excellent uh, adventure shirt. A... Uh, currently wrapped around Arthur Gordon's ta- torso as we it speak. Currently is yes, like a towel, not like a shirt. Just to be clear, yeah. it's very strange. <laughs> I also got a pop exclusive vinyl of Doctor Emmett Brown, uh, which is really cool. I got a scale uh, replica of a hoverboard from Back to the Future Two, and I also received a uh, spork. A uh, uh, it's a Doctor Who thing. It's a I don't know what it is. I don't watch Doctor Who. Bunch of so, timey wimey bullshit. Uh, but yeah, it was a really cool box this this month in October. And November's theme is going to be combat or battle, I believe. And there's going to be some Fallout Four stuff. Uh, there's a Fallout Four exclusive box, Arthur, for a hundred dollars. And so that's cool. They're also doing a Mass Effect box, I believe, uh, coming out. What? What? Yeah, I think they're doing a Mass Effect uh, box. Uh, but loot crate's a lot of fun. Um, then I also picked up WWE 2K16. I had set out a couple years because last year's uh, version I heard was terrible, and so I waited and picked up this one hoping it would be better. And it is fun. It leans itself more to wrestling sim than arcade fighter. Uh, So that's interesting to try and get into. And it's been a little uh, weird at first to kind of get used to the the way it plays in the combat, but it's, it's been pretty fun. And it has a massive roster of over 120 wrestlers, which is the largest roster of all time in a WWE game, so that's cool. And then finally, the last thing I'm excited about is uh, one of the most underrated movies of a couple years ago, Inside Llewellyn Davis from oh, the Coen man. Brothers. It really is that that movie is such an underrated. No one, no one talked well, about it, it. I mean, critically, it was a, it was a smash hit. But yeah, yeah, but even critics don't really like. No one's still t- even the critical community. No one's still talking about that movie. It's so. I weird. wouldn't say no one, but yeah, damn it, it's so good. Well, I'm super pumped because it's getting a Criterion release. Nice. Yeah, so it is. It marks the first time the Coen Brothers are on Criterion, and it marks a very good movie being put on Criterion. Soundtrack so is I, so I am, good. Yeah, it is. Man. It's a great soundtrack. And so I am super, super pumped up about dro- dropping, I think, in January, or late December, early January, I believe. So that's what I'm fired up about this week. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Caleb Masters, did you bring the fire? A little bit. I got some spark in me. Steep, still deep down. Uh, yeah, you know, not a whole lot. I I am I, I mean I already mentioned it a couple times it's already been alluded to a couple times uh, Fallout Four is right around the corner November 9th, so that means by the time this episode drops you got about four more days I've got my Epic Pit Boy edition ordered and it has made its way to the press and they've done unboxing videos and I am going all nuts over my Pit Boy and Steelbook version that I'm going to get on November 9th. Uh, and also courtesy of co-host Alex Bohannon giving me a heads up that apparently they are going to be re- uh, going to be releasing a Jones Soda tie-in for Nuka Cola Quantum, which is a drink, an item in the game you actually get to drink. Nice. Uh, so I don't drink soda, but I'm about to drink a shitload of soda. Uh, yeah, so I'm pretty excited about that. It's still a little ways away, but I'm, I'm pretty fired up about it. Uh, and then lastly, I am very excited to. 
I know. Uh, I'm very excited to watch Spectre later this week. Uh, we're going to be do- reviewing that for our podcast. Me and Arthur are going to be reviewing that for our podcast, Back to the Movies. Uh, we're going to be watching it on Wednesday. Hopefully, the review will be some uh, live sometime next Friday or Saturday. So that's that's about all I'm fired up about, Dustin. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I am glad to hear all of those things. I am also fired up. I had a weekend away with the wife, and uh, among the things that we did, we saw Silence the Musical, which is The Silence of the Lambs made into a musical. It is super raunchy, super crude. I want to make sure you are warned, dear listener, about all of that. But it is also really, really funny. If you love that movie and you like to be, you know, it's sort of like scary movie. It's like a big dumb parody uh, of what's going on uh, with that. But I had a lot of fun. Uh, watching it, and you know, I, I guess I recommend it uh, based on sort of just the sensitivity of your virgin ears. And so you have now been warned. Um, you can go ahead and look. It's, it's an off-Broadway play. It's pretty famous. So if you look it up, and you can see some of the names of some of the songs. Once you see the names of the songs, you'll know what you're getting yourself into. And I, at this point, will say no more. But uh, there you go, dear listener. There's a lot of fired up in this for you all, and we want to let you know about next week. Next week, we're going to be taking a look into the Disney Vault, recently released on Blu-ray. We're going to check out Aladdin. Three years ago, we took you on a magical journey under the sea. Last year, we took you to a place where a beautiful girl looked into the heart of a beast and found the man of her dreams. Now, come with us and enter a whole new world beyond your imagination where a boy discovers a magic lamp and a genie who can make all his dreams come true. 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck. So what'll it be, Master? I must have hit my head harder than I thought. Walt Disney Home Video presents Aladdin. You're a genie? That's right. He can be taught. You never had a friend like me. Imagine a whole new world of excitement. Imagine carpet. Danger. Whoa, carpet, let's move. And enchantment. It's the story of a poor boy from the streets and a beautiful girl from a palace. Princess Jasmine. They were two very different people. The law says you must be married to a prince. Brought together by one incredible wish. What is it you want most? There's this girl. Pretty? Beautiful. Say l'amour. But she's the princess. To even have a chance, I'd have to be... Say the magic words. Genie, I wish for you to make me a prince. All right! <laughs> Hang on to your turban, kid. We're gonna make you a star. But the evil sorcerer Jafar has learned the secret of Aladdin's power. He has the lamp. And he'll stop at nothing to steal it away. It's time to say goodbye. We'll just see about that. This is not fun yet, boy. Imagine the world at your command. Genie, I need help. Jasmine won't even let me talk to her. No! Only to discover the greatest power is within. Remember, be yourself. Do you trust me? Aladdin, featuring six new songs from the Academy Award-winning composer of The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Come over here, big group hug. Group hug. Never. Coming to video October 1st. Aladdin. You never had a friend like me. Major luck. So there you go, dear listener. Take a look at Aladdin. Also, take a look at Starship Troopers. And most importantly, after you take a look at any film, have a conversation with some people because that's what makes going to the movies so rewarding. And until then, we'll see you next time. Oh, bye.
If I had not looked the 